Hello and a warm welcome to this podcast, part of the resources of Living in Love and Faith, with its vision of intention to enable and encourage inclusive and thorough thinking around the lived reality of human identity, sexuality, relationships and marriage. In this second episode of our two-part special, we will be digging a little more deeply into the question of how do we actually hear God through the Bible, especially when people seem to disagree about what the Bible says. We'll be exploring some of the texts in the Old and New Testaments that often get more airtime than others when it comes to sexuality and relationships. And we'll be talking about the difficulties that we encounter when trying to arrive at consensus. My name is Stuart Henderson. I'm a poet, broadcaster and songwriter. With me, a learned trio of theological specialists ready to delve into scripture and to see where we can, as our guiding chapter requests, make space for variance. All this coming up in Seeking Answers, How Do We Hear God in the Bible? When considering both the hilltop clarity and valley mist of whom we are or even why we are, detecting the sure voice of sacred acceptance isn't always clear. How do we recognize mystically and practically that we are moving towards the right configuration? Or as Psalm 139 puts it, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. To take us further into what Gregory, the 4th century Bishop of Nyssa, called the opaque splendour of God, my three guests gathered from the LLF Biblical Studies Working Group bring their forensic expertise to assist and explain. The Reverend Professor Walter Moberly has been teaching Old Testament and Biblical interpretation in the Department of Theology and Religion at the University of Durham for well over 30 years. He was ordained into the Church of England some 40 years ago. Walter specializes in relating the ancient biblical texts to the issues of our times. His most recent book is The Bible in a Disenchanted Age. The Reverend Dr. Chris Wright is the International Ministries Director of the Interdenominational Langham Partnership. Prior to that, for eight years, he was the principal at All Nations Christian College in Hertfordshire. A former high school teacher in his native Belfast, Chris Wright's Cambridge doctorate was in Old Testament economic ethics. Ordained into the Church of England in 1977, he is the author of the highly popular User's Guide to the Bible. The Reverend Dr. Isabel Hamley, currently serves as chaplain to the Archbishop of Canterbury, licensed to the post in 2017. She's a former probation officer who taught biblical studies and practical theology at St John's College, Nottingham. For 10 years, she tutored in the School of Continuing Education at Nottingham University. In 2019, she published a commentary on specific chapters in the Book of Judges called unspeakable things unspoken. Now, the LLF book has a section called Some Relevant Texts in the Bible. Walter Moberly, if these are relevant texts, 
then surely they contain the answers to our questions about same-sex relationships and we can settle the matter by looking at them together. Where are these texts and why are we still talking about them? Relevant texts take more than one form. I mean, the most fundamentally relevant texts in the Bible are about the nature of God and our relationship with him in faith, in trust, in hope, in repentance and so on. I mean, those are the, as it were, the primarily and most enduringly relevant bits of scripture. But in particular times and places, such as ours, then certain other passages become highly contested and when issues of sex, sexuality, gender, marriage and so on are being contested, then that makes verses of scripture, passages that address these questions um, to be to be relevant. But what matters is how we interpret them, what we do with them. And to say things come down to a matter of interpretation can often sound and may sometimes be evasive, but many of the difficulties relate to the fact that we don't always take the framing question sufficiently seriously. We suppose we can just focus in on, well, what does this text say, um, without seeing that there are the bigger framing questions that make a difference to what we do with it. Could you mention then specifically some of the contentious texts? I mean, on same-sex issues, one of the most contentious texts has become the story of Sodom and Gomorrah um, in the book of Genesis. Um, it is that that has given the term sodomy, sodomite, sodomize to the English language. And you will still find people who will say, well, you know, the Bible shows that sodomy is wrong. End of discussion. Where now it's, well, it's fairly clear to, I think, to anyone who reads the text quite carefully that the same-sex dimension is not primarily what the story is about. It's about xenophobic violence, people in a town not liking visitors, wanting to humiliate them, and using sex as a means of doing that. And so it's not actually a very good use of that story to say uh, that it gives an answer to questions of, what should same-sex relations today be on the part of those who seek to be mutual, trusting, committed, loving, and, and so on. You know, it's just about something different. So to say, well, that shows that sodomy is wrong, is a really bad use of that part of scripture. Chris Wright, is there a danger that we culturally impose our understanding on such a, a text, the narrative, well, yes, of course, there always is that danger. Um, the text of the book from which you took the phrase reading some relevant texts begins by saying that we have to take all these texts in Scripture as a whole with every part of it, which presents us, therefore, with the framework and the context of understanding them. But I think Walter is right that that's not where I would start any discussion on the question of same-sex relations today and the other texts that that particular part of the chapter uh, rays, of course, come from other parts of the Bible, like uh, the Torah from Leviticus and from the, uh, the the words of Jesus in the Gospels and from the words of Paul in Romans and Corinthians. So they are used and they're called relevant in the book, I think, because they actually do talk about the issue of, of same-sex 
uh, and of marriage, uh, but uh, but need to be seen as relevant within the context of the whole revelation of Scripture, which in my case I would certainly want to take right back to Genesis, and not to Genesis 19, but to Genesis 1 and 2. Taking some of these relevant texts in, say, Genesis and Judges, let me warn you, they are called texts of terror. Isabel Hamley, let's look at those texts and talk about their context. If we're to read the Bible as a whole, some may say, how on earth is God speaking, say, especially in Judges 19 to 21, and especially in relation to identity and gender and welcoming the other? Could you just also give us the context of Judges 19 to 21, please? Looking at Judges 19 to 21, I think you're seeing a text that is part of the whole of the book of Judges. Um, and the book of Judges is part of the bigger story of the Old Testament. And so setting that text into that bigger context is really important. What you see in the book of Judges is a people that is entering a new land and starting to try and live in new ways. And, and the book of Judges starts with the story of one woman, Aksa, who is who goes across the country, goes to her father, asks for an inheritance. She's named, she's known. And the book finishes with a radically different story. We have a woman who is a concubine, so it doesn't have the legal status of marriage. Um, she leaves her husband, we're not clear why, goes back to her father. Her husband goes back to get her, and on the way back, they stay in a town in Gibeah. And they are, the house where they're staying is surrounded by strangers who want to rape the man who is her husband, but he throws the concubine out and she is gang raped by the men of the town and subsequently dies. Um, and then that leads into um, a civil war in Israel and the civil war is ended by the abduction and forced marriage of a number of women. So the book of Judges has lots and lots of female characters, more than many other books in the Bible, and we see them gradually being treated in worse and worse ways by a community that has forgotten how to be a community. Judges 19 actually tells us this is what the world is like. And yet this is still part of God's world. And actually there is a place in God's story for that experience to be held. Chris Rice, continuing the theme of being alert to the historical and cultural context of difficult passages of the Bible, let's move to Leviticus 18 and 20 on the protection of the integrity of marriage. What's going on there and what assumptions could arise if these verses are taken out of the societal context? Well, I think this is where it is important, in my view, to take passages in Leviticus uh, as a whole, not just 18 and 20, uh, in the context of the totality of the Torah, which begins with the narratives of Genesis and the story of creation uh, and of God's covenant and so on. The Israelite household was a broad uh, family structure in which several nuclear families would be living together in close proximity. Uh, and these laws in Leviticus 18 and 20 are, in, in many scholars' view, there to protect the uh, integrity of uh, individual marriages and family units within the wider extended family and household that was normal within Israelite society. Uh, and it's in, in that context with the understanding, which I think, in my view, is biblically rooted, 
that God's intention for marriage is between a man and a woman, uh, going back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, uh, that it is intended to be, in that sense, heterosexual and uh, exclusive and faithful, that in that understanding of marriage, then anything which, uh, and a whole range of things which deviate from that, is seen as not pleasing to God. And it's when we see it in that context that we can ask, then, is the pattern of God's desire for human sexuality and marriage something that we see as a, a creational good and therefore applicable simply beyond the boundaries of Israelite household structure and therefore still in that sense relevant today. And I would want to say yes, that as it were God's best pattern for sexual behavior uh, between the males and females, the men and women he has created, does seem to extend further than simply uh, the Israelite culture. Walter, with the with the Torah, the, the Hebrew scriptures being in a manner an account of God's exclusive relationship with the, the Israelites, how would you then interpret Leviticus 18 and 20 in a modern light? One of the things that, you know, strikes me as I look historically at ancient Israel is how in so many ways it's a different kind of society from the much more fluid, loose, mobile, uh, etc., society of today, in the kind of way that doesn't mean that there can't be sort of moral constants, but at least some aspects of what makes moral sense might play very differently in the kind of loose and mobile context that we live in from the much more structured, stable, ordered kind of community that was part of ancient Israel, which is, I think, one of the factors that plays into why, for some people, ancient codes about sexual practice just don't sort of register. They don't feel that they make sense anymore. Chris? We have to ask, I think, the prior question for what purpose did God create Israel in that culture in order to create the literature which we now call the Old Testament, the scriptures, as they were to Jesus and Paul? And it, it seems to me that if God is creating Israel to be in some sense a light to the nations as he describes them, then in my view there is something, something at least exemplary, or I use the word paradigmatic, about the scriptures which are saying to Israel, these are the ways that will work best for your own good in relation to the way God uh, wants society to work, which applies, of course, not just to sexual issues. I think I want to affirm something of the hermeneutical value of God having worked within the limits of a particular culture, something incarnational about that. And let's even say that Jesus himself was a particular man, uh, a Jewish man in his own culture, and yet God could speak authoritatively and with... Uh, eternal significance and relevance through him as through the scriptures before him. Isabel. For me, questions of power, of gender, and who gets to write and to interpret the text are really relevant when we're dealing with a text like Leviticus in particular. I find for me one of my problems, I would say, when I read Leviticus is that mostly it's addressed in the you form and the you is male. You know, do this with your wife or your slave or, you know, so women and slaves to a degree are not the primary audience of Leviticus. So one of my questions is, what do I do with this text 
that was actually addressed not to me. That's a question of power, of who is visible within the text. And so with a text like Leviticus, you don't just have a cultural distance, but you also have a social strata of people that are addressed or not necessarily addressed in the same way that actually further complexify what we can and can't do in moving from that text to today. But that would apply to the Ten Commandments too. I mean, the fact that it says you shall not steal doesn't mean only that only applies to the men, that if women steal it was okay. I understand there's an issue of, of power here, but I'm not sure that it somehow then so relativizes the moral importance of a text like uh, Leviticus 18 that we then put it, as it were, with a big question mark as to whether it applies today at all or not. If I respond on, certainly, for instance, on the um, on the Ten Commandments, as a woman reading it and seeing the you in one of the versions of the Ten Commandments, it does say you, your wife, or do not covet your neighbor's wife. And it, it talks about women as dependents of the men. And I cannot be both the object of the commandment to a degree on the subject, if you know what I mean. I cannot be the person that is addressed, but the person who's implied in the address to the other. I think the questions of power and who is addressed and who is in charge of almost policing that society do actually matter. And that would be even more so, I would argue, with members of the LGBT community to have that sense of, well, are we the ones with no power before this text? Because it has been used and interpreted over the century by those who are not like us. Let's move on now to St Paul's approach in his letters to the churches in Rome and Corinth, or his letter to Timothy. More texts that arouse debate in this area. Walter Moberly, could you tell us how these New Testament texts are relevant to questions of sexuality and identity today, picking up on Isabel's point? Well, in the first instance, at the risk of being annoying and not answering the question, they only make sense in the bigger framework of what Paul is saying about the difference that Jesus Christ makes to the history of God's dealings with the world and of people in it. And anything that is said about sexual morality practice and whatever will only make sense within that bigger frame of reference. And if we don't see the big picture, we will always misinterpret the particular little bits that we're looking at because we don't see um, how they belong to, to a, a bigger reality, which is what Paul is fundamentally about. Isabel Hamley um, none of these relevant texts make reference to the four Gospels, the teachings of Jesus. Is that relevant in itself? The teaching of Jesus is always relevant. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Um, the Gospels do kind of have something to say, of course. I think the difficulty we have here is that actually we're discussing a specific issue which often is not addressed head-on in Scripture. Jesus doesn't really say, oh, what is marriage? I'm going to tell you what marriage is and what's, you know, what you should and shouldn't do. But he does talk about marriage. 
and he does talk about things that go wrong in marriage. So he teaches about divorce and in that he goes back to Genesis 1 and the text about being male and female and, and God enabling that. So, of course, that is relevant for understanding the bigger picture that scripture has to give about good relationships between men and women. What I'm not sure it does is necessarily tell us very much about other relationships. It's clear to most people that we're living in days of national and global tumult. For many marginalised communities, the unaddressed injustices of the past contribute to their distress as well as their thirst for redress. The Episcopal priest Barbara Brown Taylor counsels that we can be taught by such collective painful emotions. We learn, she says, by listening to those who are sleeping in the wilderness. Chris Wright, given the church's unsettled state when it comes to the divisive issue of same-sex marriage, can you see anywhere in the Bible a space for variance? The simple answer to that question is no I can't but I want to be very careful as to how I qualify that because I want to go back to the first part of what you said which is that there are people in the world and in the Christian community who have been profoundly hurt violated abused uh, because of their sexual orientation treated unfairly and unjustly and wrongly and in my opinion, that is simply morally wrong, and I believe that Jesus would have been as opposed to that as we ought to be. I wanted to say that uh, in order to, in a sense, defend myself from the accusation of being homophobic and all of those other things that are said against those who would still hold, as I wish to, to what I believe the Bible says about marriage. And to me, this is both a theological question and because of my understanding of the Bible, an ontological one which is that I believe that the Bible teaches from Genesis that marriage by God's intention is male and female, that it is in that sense definitionally heterosexual. Uh, and that other aspects of marriage, which of course are there in the scriptures, the demand for faithfulness, for exclusivity, uh, in other words, the commands against adultery and so on, uh, that this is a, a loving, faithful relationship uh, that, of course, there are other relationships in between us as human beings which are loving and faithful and committed and often permanent, which are not necessarily to be called marriage, uh, but which are very valued and very important, and some of those are between people of the same sex. I suppose my, one of my difficulties with discussions in, in recent years in Western culture is that the sheer richness of marriage as it has developed not just in scripture but over some 2,000 years of Christian and other teaching and reflection, that has hardly received justice it seems to me when the concern has been can we recognise people who are same-sex people or others who are mutually attracted to which a large part of me wants to say yes but it's not clear why that should be called marriage to equate recognition, uh, you know, as, as in same-sex partnerships, uh, civil partnerships, then to say, ah, oh, well, you know, really that's the same as marriage. That seemed to me to be moving much too quickly. Isabel. 
I think I probably would agree largely with my two colleagues. Some of my additional reflections would be that scripture does work in a world where gender difference matters, where women and men are not the same. They don't occupy the same positions in society. Some of that is purely cultural, but I would want to argue that there is something deeper about it. There's something theological about the male-female difference. But at the same time, I have to say, I, my primary allegiance is not as a biblical scholar, but as a pastor and working with people and listening to their stories of, of exclusion, but also to their stories of love, of relationships that seem to bring blessing to those around them and asking what, you know, how do I put together what I read in scripture and what I see in the world around me? How do I enable my gay friends or parishioners to understand the world of scripture and how God is speaking to them today? And so I haven't got a firm answer to your question because I feel torn between some of what I read in scripture and some of what I see um, in the world around me. Has the LLF debate then, is it steering people towards some creative new way of reading and interpreting the scriptures? Do you think the way forward is a reformation in thinking or... For some, it may well be a retreat from the debate. Part of my answer to your question would be all of us, whoever we are, whether we want to have an interpretation and a way of travelling that is progressive or conservative, need to come to it with a degree of humility and accepting that none of us, regardless of how certain we are that we're right, actually are sure that we're right. And so I would be very wary of a totalitarian interpretation. I think the question in my mind, having spent two years on LLF, is how can we in the church, varied as we are, enable one another to live as healthily, faithfully as we can? And as a church, can we have the courage to walk together despite the fact that I don't think we'll be able to find a one-size-fits-all answer to the questions we're asking? Chris, reformation or retreat? Yes, I, I'm not sure that it's either of those, really. Um, I mean, the process has been long. Um, it's, it's been challenging. Uh, it's been painful in some ways. I, you know, when I hugely admire what has been done in living in love and faith, I don't think it's going to resolve the issue, but it has done a big job, a good job, in trying to describe the issue and to, to map it and to show us and to... Let us hear the voices uh, of those uh, on, on, from, with different experience and different perceptions. Uh, and that's a good thing, that we should have listened and learned from one another. But at some point, uh, part of being a responsible Bible teacher and pastor is that one struggles to understand what does the Bible teach on this with, with some kind of comprehensive canonical understanding of the Scripture. And how do I then uh, apply that in terms of ethical standards, pastoral care, loving inclusion, and all of those things. It's not an easy one, but at some point one has to stand up and say, this is what I actually think the scriptures teach, and then work out the implications of that. Walter, again, the same, I'm, I'm afraid, polarised question, reformation or retreat? 
Yes, thank you. Yes, it gives me great pleasure to say I dislike the question. Um, <laughs> um, or, or to put it differently, it seems to me that in every generation, the church has one fundamental challenge. That is to begin to understand and enter into the reality of God as known in Jesus Christ and supremely in his passion, his death, his resurrection. I mean, one possible example is to look at the way in which Christians have been rethinking their relationship with Jewish people in the last generation, where much of Christian history has been very negative towards Jewish people, but for various reasons, not least of them the Holocaust, there has been a fundamental rethinking a sense of there may be a faithfulness here to a call, to an identity, um, which we didn't get right in the past. Now, again, that, that doesn't answer our immediate question, but it's trying to reframe what is the challenge of how we understand the big picture, why Christian faith matters in the first place, and then asking, how do we refit everything in the light of that? And, you know, in the short term, we often don't know, or we get it wrong. I think I would just want to reinforce one of the things that Walter said a little bit earlier in the conversation, and it, it may, it's just that I think uh, there was a point when he said that, you know, there, there are all kinds of relationships of love, faithfulness, sincerity, uh, permanence, all of those good things uh, and they can be true within both heterosexual and same-sex relationships between people. But that doesn't, in and of itself, those are not the only constitutive factors for marriage. And, and so the, the question of then simply moving, as, as, as our secular world did, of course, in, in the country, in the laws of the country, with the argument being, more or less, that the only thing that makes really marriage important is love. And so, you know, if, 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 who are you to tell us who I may or may not love? Well, nobody's trying to tell you who you may or may not love. Um, but love in, in the Bible is never the determining factor of, of behavior. Um, the church needs to think more clearly about what is it that constitutes uh, marriage and is, therefore, are we moving uh, in immediately saying that uh, a same-sex relationship which has all those other elements of faithfulness and love and permanence and so on, uh, does that constitute marriage? And that, that, I think, was Walter said, we needed to think more about that. My own feeling is, yes, we do, but I think from a Bible point of view, it doesn't constitute marriage in, the, in my un understanding of the ontology of marriage from Genesis. And I guess, in addition, there's the, the question of the language we use, Chris, isn't there? That the way in which we talk about marriage today, certainly in popular parlance, is actually quite different from the way marriage would have worked in the Old Testament. Even the legal framework around marriage is, is very different. Yeah. Um, and certainly the Hollywood version of marriage, a being primarily about romantic love is radically at odds with marriage. For instance, you know, when we if we go back to Leviticus as actually a constitutive part of society that enables stability, survival, um, good economics, you know, it's it's a much actually it's a much bigger thing. 
Yeah, of course it is, and and so it should be, and and, and in some traditional societies still today, it is. It is much more a cementing of relationships between families, uh, with gifts and so on, much more invested in it. Uh, so I quite agree that, that that marriage, you know, has has broad cultural significance in different ways, and different places. I totally agree with that, um, but as I understand the Genesis one and two situation, the the male-female nature of what is said there, which is then endorsed by Jesus, is not simply, as some people want to say, illustrative of what a marriage could be. You know, it could be between men and women, but perhaps it could be otherwise. No, I, I don't think it's just illustrative. My own view is that it is constitutive. The society in which we live now is very reluctant to accept difference. When I found it fascinating to think, you know, if we talk about having different vocabulary for things, a lot of us immediately start to create a hierarchy of what is good and what is not so good. And and so one of the questions I think we do have to ask is, can we have different types of relationships with different names, but without having that default human tendency to actually start seeing difference as a difference in quality um, and actually have the ability to to value different different shapes of relationships without comparing them. To conclude this special two-part Bible edition, I want to ask you all what we can draw from St. Paul's approach um, in the book of Romans, where he was grappling with some pretty fervent identity differences and divisions in, in this particular fledgling church. Walter, could you give us the context of those disagreements, please? To some extent, the the disagreements are actually quite hard to identify and pin down. Um, they're to do with practices of eating and festival observance, but um, if you actually ask which particular <laughs> practices or, or festivals or days, um, it, it, the text doesn't say. Um, we don't know. But it looks to be in relation to practices that have been important um, in a Jewish frame of reference where in a Christian frame of reference now, some are saying these Jewishly inherited practices matter still in the same way they always did, where others are saying, no, they don't. But Paul's concern is not to pronounce. It's to try to establish an attitude, a way of thinking about these things and a way of handling them in the light of Christ which means you're not to set yourself over someone else and score points at their expense, I'm right, you're wrong, which means that at least as far as the Romans 14 and 15 goes, it's living with, with difference and disagreement because the all-important thing as far as Paul goes in that context is um, to have Christ, the model of Christ, as your way of relating to your fellow Christian. Chris, do, do you admire the way Paul went about trying to resolve these enormous differences? Absolutely, I do. Uh, and I think that Romans 14 and 15 to me are very, very precious chapters. I, I preached on them. I think they're hugely important for Christian unity. Uh, I think a lot of church disputes would be solved if people sat down and studied those two chapters before they had their PCC meetings and so on. The problem comes that the same Paul who wrote those chapters to Jewish, almost certainly Jewish and Gentile background believers in Rome, 
the same Paul, you know, when he's writing to the Romans and to the Corinthian church especially, is very clear that there are some things which can't simply be treated as, well, we'll just agree to differ here, uh, that that he would actually go so far as to say that there are certain behaviors in which a person should be uh, asked to leave the community. So Paul is saying that, yes, we need to accept one another in Christ, but there are certain kinds of behaviors which are unacceptable for those who claim to belong to Christ. So Romans 14, 15, by all means, preach it you know, for, uh, for Christian unity, but recognize that there are areas where the Apostle Paul uh, came up with uh, necessary boundaries to Christian behavior. I, I largely agree with Chris that there are some things that Paul has a very clear line on. Um, I guess what I read in those texts, though, is that Paul is addressing people who are consciously doing things that are wrong and are refusing to change. At least that's some of what I'm looking at. And I struggle to square that with my experience of listening to LGBT Christians who are, as far as I can see, genuinely, desperately seeking to follow God to the best of their ability. And so I don't see in them the type of attitude that Paul is necessarily condemning. I see people who are seeking to understand who they are and trying to to navigate um, how to walk with God in the best possible way. And so to me, that comes slightly more into the Romans text of how do we how do we find a way of walking together? I think rather than trying to find a way of disagreeing together, I would want to phrase that more positively and think, how do we find a way of walking together that enables all of us to walk more faithfully and closer to the Lord? Thank you very much for joining us in this podcast. My thanks to Walter Moberly, Chris Wright and Isabel Hamley. And if you'd like to rate or even review this podcast, then that would be the terrific topping on our audio pizza. And there are further resources available at churchofengland.org forward slash LLF. Goodbye and thank you for listening.